anybody know me? <laughs> okay, I guess I don't have to introduce myself. <laughs> Amy's not here today, so uh, I start off on my own. I thought I would start with the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. We started the um, series last week, uh, taught a creation spirituality, and I indicated that what I would be doing is uh, working basically through a book by Elizabeth Johnson. Uh, the book is entitled Ask the Beasts, uh, Darwin and the God of Love. And uh, it's kind of a, an interchange of taking um, Darwin's theory of evolution seriously and then uh, putting it into interaction with the creed. So, Father, Son, and Spirit, and uh, how insights from Darwin have to uh, affect or influence in some way uh, the, uh, our insight into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then at the same time, how all of those things can give us a deeper dimension to Darwin's theory. So it's kind of the interchange of those things. I also said I would work uh, a little bit out of the encyclical that uh, Pope Francis wrote, uh, Laudato Si, which is from uh, St. Francis' Prayer for Creation, and uh, it's called On Care for Our Common Home, and it's again uh, dealing with the environmental issues and a creation theology. <clears throat> So I, I, I joked that uh, last week um, we just spent time talking about what Darwin said. Uh, Elizabeth Johnson, uh, in her preface, indicates that when she first wrote the book, she sent the manuscript out to um, uh, various colleagues for comment and suggestions, and the colleagues uh, sent back to her you know, the observation that said, now you're assuming that people actually know what Darwin said. And so... <laughs> She went back and wrote the whole first third of her book actually telling you what Darwin said. So uh, last week we just took snippets of that, but we tried to uh, kind of set up what is really going on in terms of evolutionary theory. And the, the point that I made um, uh, last time, I, there are you know a couple of things in terms of evolutionary theory that are at the heart of what Darwin talked about. He said, first of all, there's always a sense that there's, there's change or mutation. There's kind of a natural or spontaneous change within creation all of the time. So we know it in terms of uh, DNA by saying we call it gene mutation. But there are also kind of differences in, uh, in what happens in the environment around us and how that kind of affects creatures. So there are just spontaneous variations that take place. But some of those variations are able to be inherited. And then what happens is over deep time, those in, uh, variations that are able to be inherited um, help creatures in what's called the, the struggle for existence. So Darwin came up with two principal things that uh, I think we need to keep thinking about. One is what he called descent with modification. Um, so we kind of keep moving along and all aspects of creation uh, get modified, keep getting modified. But what happens is some of those modifications 
help us in what he called the struggle for existence. Uh, we have come to call descent with modification natural selection, as if somebody's selecting things, but nobody's selecting anything. Descent with modification just happens spontaneously. But then some of those modifications um, wind up enduring, and that's what we call selection. Huh? They get selected out, but it's kind of a passive thing. Those um, uh, modifications wind up um, uh, persisting because uh, in our world situation, in the nature of, of creation itself, uh, not everything can survive, right? So, you know, if everything survived, we'd be overcrowded and the whole world would just uh, would not last uh, very long. All of creation would not last very long. So what happens is there's always what Darwin called the struggle for existence. We got to call that um, the survival of the fittest. And that made it sound, like, again, like everything is, you know, in violent conflict with one another and then somebody's selecting out of all of this and survival of the fittest. So descent with modification and descent with modification um, winds up um, uh, having some modifications endure uh, because in the struggle for existence, uh, some modifications help whatever you're talking about, creatures or plants or even rocks. Some of those modifications help in the uh, struggle for existence, uh, help some things to kind of endure. And then what happens is those things that help in, uh, in survival, those things uh, wind up becoming uh, permanent until you get the next change or modification. So what we have is uh, just from the observation of the world around us and from Darwin's fine-tuned observing of everything, he started his book by saying, when we see, and he saw everything in minute detail and kept studying that, uh, he came up with a whole evolutionary theory. So, so descent with modification and uh, struggle for existence uh, are two principal components of Darwin's uh, theory. And then what we need also is what we call deep time. Uh, you need a long, long, long time. So now that we know the world is 13 and a half billion years old, we have enough time uh, for a lot of these things. And in fact, who knows how long it's going to go. We're still, you know, in ongoing stages of a whole lot of things. But that gets to be Darwin's theory of, um, of evolution that uh, is kind of the centerpiece that um, uh, Johnson wants to talk about and that I think has become kind of central to our own uh, view of the world. So I don't know what will happen when science keeps moving along, but that seems to be our best insight right now. And, of course, all of that begins to affect how we see God, how we see the world around us, and how we begin to describe, you know, transcendent reality. So today, are, are we, we clear on that? Are there any questions or things? That, that was basically last week's uh, talk. <laughs> so um, what we're going to do now is try to take the um, various aspects of the creed and see now, how does this give us a picture of God? How do we relate to God in all of this? How do we see ourselves in all of this? And uh, so uh, what we're going to do is take Father, Son, and Spirit, but we're going to do them in uh, reverse order uh, because Johnson thinks that it's, it's helpful to uh, begin with the Holy Spirit uh, to give us a sense of how all of this, um, you know, gives us an insight into God. So... <clears throat> We still believe in God, but God keeps changing for us, right? Keep getting new insights into who this God is. We still have faith, but faith keeps enunciating new aspects of, uh, of things. 
And so what we begin to do uh, today is to look at the, at the Holy Spirit and to try to figure out how we can understand the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that, that I think is helpful in looking at the, the nature of creation and then seeing how the Holy Spirit is involved in that is to recognize that, recognize that traditionally when we've talked about creation there are really three aspects of, of creation and some are getting to be more important than others. We used to talk about original creation. <clears throat> so creation was just way off at the beginning. You know, it got started. And in fact, in the past, I suppose, when faith worked and when we thought about God as creator, that was the only kind of creation that we worried about specifically, and that was what we could call original creation. But now we begin to recognize that there are other things that are going on, and Darwin's theory especially you know, brings that to the fore, but it pulls out things that we already had as a sense in the past, but maybe not with the same kind of uh, prominence. And that is that creation is also a continual creation, that God has to sustain being in existence. <clears throat> so in the past, we talked about providence, and providence was a way of kind of handling that continual creation. But I think we also had that sense of providence as some kind of, uh, kind of direct intervention of God, you know, that God not only started things off, but God keeps pushing things around, you know, and God keeps intervening in things. And so we always had a sense of providence as if it was God's direct action in the world. And then we start looking at evolutionary theory and all that we talked about where you get spontaneous, you know, mutations and then some survive, you know, and those mutations help us to keep moving along and we keep changing and a lot of it kind of comes with spontaneity, chaos, randomness. Randomness is a really important part of that. So then people start saying, well, how can you talk about providence if things are random? You know, doesn't God have control over all of this? Isn't God doing all of this? Isn't God changing all of these things? So we have to go back and kind of look at continual creation or what we call providence and try to understand it in a way that seems consistent with chaos randomness, spontaneity, how can God be in the middle of all of that uh, when it doesn't look like God's doing anything in the middle of all of that? It just happens spontaneously. Yeah? So, you know, we, we start, uh, if we don't understand it properly, I think what happens is then that's when we start finding oppositions of things, you know. Uh, and in fact, that's what happened with science and religion. Evolutionary theory kept coming in, and then people kept saying, well, it, it's just chaos, and it's spontaneity, and it, it just happens. And said, why do you have God, you know, doing all of this? You know, as if there's direct intervention of God in all of this. And then people started to fight one another. And so uh, Johnson, and I think even Pope Francis and, and others, you know, are developing a theology that tries to see that the, um, um, you know, this compatibility uh, in continuous creation with this sense of uh, randomness or uh, dissent with modification and struggle for existence and all of that, how to get those together. So original creation, continuous creation, and then what you can describe as new creation, uh, new creation, which again was always in our tradition, but maybe something that we need to see as more important. Uh, when I think of that, and we're going to do that in more detail later, but I had uh, you know, one of my colleagues who said, you know, what, what we always had was kind of a sense that God kind of uh, began things and God is kind of pushing everything along. And he says, maybe now what we need to see is not God at the beginning or, or God, you know, kind of involved in everything, but God beckoning us forward. Huh? That the whole picture of God is the God of the future. 
and the God who is kind of calling us forward to be what we could be, and in fact is calling all of creation forward. So you can kind of describe that as a new creation, <clears throat> that in fact creation isn't finished, and in many respects creation is barely started, huh? and that what's really happening in our own lives and where we're really, uh, what, what's really, what God is really doing is kind of bringing about creation, and we're all part of that process. So a new creation is important. So original creation, continuous creation, and new creation are the, uh, the different ways of looking at things. So when, when we um, um, look at the Holy Spirit, and in fact even when we look at Jesus, which is going to be next week, what we're really dealing with is especially the presence of God. It's talking about continuous creation. So we'll get to you know, past and we'll get to future when we talk about God the Father. Uh, or God the Mother. Uh, when we talk about uh, you know the first person of the Trinity, then uh, we'll be dealing with original and uh, and new. But what what we really need to look at is the sense that creation is really something in which God kind of possesses, inhabits, is present, uh, and is, is constantly accompanying uh, creation. And that is captured especially by the sense of the uh, the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that, that's interesting when you think about the Holy Spirit is that we uh, can't even picture it as a person, right? Or he or she or it. I don't know what. Huh? When we talk about spirit. So spirit is always wind, it's bird, it's fire, you know, it's all of these things. Why? Because I think in some ways what it's trying to capture is what in, in theology we talk about as the immanence of God. In other words, what, when we're starting to picture God, we don't want to picture God up there or God out there. Huh? God is as deep within us as we can find. Right? So that we're going to hold what we could call a transcendent dimension. Huh? In other words, no matter how much we've got God inside us and, and we find God within, God's always more than that. Right? So as long as God is always more than that, there's that transcendent dimension. But what we've done very often when we thought about transcendence in the past is we thought about transcendence and God always being more than that as if God was someplace else. Right? So transcendence meant otherness and otherness always meant up in heaven or you know, in the big sky or someplace else but not us. Right? Now what we're beginning to say is that when we think about God probably the, the, the best starting point is to picture of God as really imminent within us, that God is everywhere, and God sustains being. In fact, that's probably the best arguments for the existence of God anymore, is really the arguments from imminence. What we begin to recognize is that we go down as deep as we can within us, and we find out that we never exhaust what we find. Huh? That when we keep probing what we're all about and what makes us, we just find out that it just goes down deeper and deeper and deeper and, and finally goes down so deep that we begin to recognize that we don't have the wherewithal to explain everything about ourselves no matter how deep we go. So there's something else that's sustaining us and supporting us. Huh? Uh, we can talk about arguments from contingency, right? Arguments of contingency that we look at all of creation around us and what we recognize is that no matter how much we keep trying to figure out all of creation around us, we find out that it doesn't have the wherewithal to explain itself, right? And that finally, if you're going to give explanation or meaning, you're going to find something else that sustains it all in being. Um, argument from 
contingency, uh, that we, we're not the last reality. So some people don't want to do that at all. Some people just say, it just is. And I said, when you say it just is, you haven't asked any questions about meaning. You haven't asked any questions about, so what? Uh, or why? Uh, and so contingency is what kind of moves us towards that. Uh, so it is, just is. But there's something else that's sustaining what just is. Uh, and there may be spontaneity in all kinds of things, but there's something that's sustaining all of that and allowing all of that to happen. So it's contingency or it's imminence. So we go down inside ourselves and we say, I'm looking for truth. Uh, I want knowledge. And we keep probing knowledge and we keep asking ourselves, so why this and why that? What does it mean and what does it mean? And it, no matter how far down we go, final meaning is not found in terms of ourselves. We never exhaust truth. We never finally say there, I got to the bottom. Now I got all truth figured out. Huh? There's always something more huh? that keeps telling us more. And then that's what keeps telling us, well, then there must be a transcendent reality, something that is more than what we can probe and find out that's sustaining all of that stuff, huh? that's ultimately supporting all of it, that is within it, but it's a deeper ground of meaning was the, the word that Tillich used, huh? Paul Tillich. Ground of meaning, huh? ground of being. So not someplace else, not just kind of creating things and sending it off, you know, or pulling strings, but in it, uh, sustaining it all, making it possible to continue in existence and giving ultimate meaning or truth to what it is. We look for things like beauty, and nobody ever says, I've now seen enough beauty, I think I'll go look for something else. Right? No matter how much we keep looking for beauty, there's always more. Huh? There's always something more. Huh? So we're always searching, always wrestling. And all of that says there's something then that must be infinite beauty. And that beauty ultimately is contained by something that is beautiful itself. Right? And that's what we call God, huh? or transcendent reality. Or we talk about love. You know? And we say, well, you know, I, I've now finished love. I'm going to go do something else. Huh? You know? So it, it's those dimensions of human life, you know, beauty, truth, love, those aspects of human existence that we really find by looking inside ourselves. We don't, we don't look elsewhere. We're always looking inside ourselves to find out, what am I all about? What makes sense? You know, what's beautiful? What, what do I appreciate as beauty? What's good for me? You know, what do I really love? Uh, those things are all, we're searching inside ourselves all the time to, to find the depths of our own being and personality. And what all of that is pointing to is something that's richer and, and something that must be love itself or goodness itself or truth itself or beauty itself that, in fact, is more than me and that somehow I participate in it. And so all of that is what we call immanence, huh? not imminence. Huh? Imminence is time, you know, about to happen. Immanence is the withinness of things. Huh? So that's ultimately where, where God is, right? And when we kind of frame that in our Christian terms, or I think even within Judaism, we frame that by talking about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is that aspect of divinity, that aspect of God that indwells, that ultimately becomes part of our being, that is immanent and within us. The reason why we try to, uh, uh, we, we end up picturing the spirit also as bird or fire or wind or something else is because uh, we try to capture that, that within this of, of God's being that's more 
than just simply a person. Huh? When, when we think about persons, that always kind of gives us a picture of something that's next to us, huh? or around us, or opposite us in some way, and we can't capture the full withinness of things. Huh? So, because we want to capture that more, we fall to these different images, because they capture that God is not next to us, which might come by picturing God as a person, usually with a big white beard and sitting on a cloud someplace, right? But it's always outside. You see that transcendent, that puts them outside, and we want that God inside. So what happens is we move away from images of people, right, or a person, although God is all of that. Huh? We can say God is personal, and, and God is, uh, you know, relates to us the way people relate to one another. But God does that in a totally different way, and so it's within, right? And so then we fall to other images, and we talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the keys that I think is important is when you think about the Holy Spirit, don't fall into thinking about the Holy Spirit as a person, right? In other words, where we also get in trouble is that we separate the Holy Spirit from God, or we separate the Holy Spirit from Jesus, or we start acting as if the Holy Spirit is another person, right? Now, we use word person when we talk about three persons in the Trinity, but that use of person has nothing to do with people, huh? the way we talk about people. So, person is not always a helpful term when you're thinking about it, because we equate person with people, and then we end up with three people in God, and they're all separate from one another, and the Holy Spirit is pictured as another person. We're not sure what it looks like, but it's persons, right? So, what we need to do is to forget about all of that, and to think about the Holy Spirit as always the spirit of something. It's the spirit of, Right? And then we fall to these other images to get away from picturing people because that's capturing better the reality of God within. Huh? Continuous creation, a God who is always creating because it's a God who supports and sustains everything that's going on. So the spirit is not to be pictured just as a person, but to be pictured as bird, fire, and all of that, although we know it's not that, right? But all of those realities are capturing the withinness of God. Am I making any sense here? You know, that, that, that God within our being. So look at the different images that we use. We use wind. Well, wind kind of captures the reality also, as it translated from, from Hebrew, and as we use it in a biblical sense, it's breath. So, you know, wind or breath is kind of capturing that withinness. So, you know, our creation story, God breathes the breath of life. It's trying to capture somehow that intimacy of God to us, huh? God who is within us and no farther away from us than we are ourselves. That's where we find God. That's who God is. So he's always more than that, but he's never less than that, right? So God is breath or God is wind. What you also have with that image of wind is that it's also terribly unpredictable, right? Wind blows where it will, huh? So it's within us, it's our very breath that is that existence of God, but it's also unpredictable. It's also life-giving, right? So this God is ultimately what sustains everything in existence. Huh? Life itself, but even before life, huh? rocks and, uh, you know, dirt and, uh, you know, the, the planets. All of these things are being sustained by God. And so the, the, the sense of wind is trying to capture that inner reality, which won't be captured very well if you picture a person uh, who's always outside in some way. We use the, uh, the concept of water. Uh, the spirit is poured into us. 
And that captures the reality well because you know what water does. Huh? Water goes everywhere. Anybody who owns a house knows that, right? And you can't even always find out where the roof leaks, you know, because it's going every which way. Huh? So this whole sense of water being poured huh, is that sense, again, of that imminence, huh? the withinness of God that is being captured by that, uh, by that reality. Um, we use the image of uh, fire. Fire has a sense of illumination. Fire has a sense of warmth. Fire has the sense also of uncontrollable element that sometimes burns things up or purifies in some way. But you see, it's all inside and it's doing all of this. So it's giving us ultimate truth, insight into who we are and what we're all about. But it's also purifying, it's comforting, it's accompanying. So it's warmth and comfort. We use the image of a bird and in the biblical sense, I think the sense of bird has something to do with uh, fecundity or fertility. It had something to do with uh, beauty, with love. But again, the image of a bird trying to capture the inner realities that we experience when we talk about the Holy Spirit. So he's not really a bird, huh? but it captures all the elements that the bird represents in terms of fecundity, hovering, mothering, huh? all of that. Jesus refers to himself as a mother hen gathering chicks, you know. So there's all that sense of, 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 again, that inner nurturing that comes from the sense of the spirit. So all of these things are the the reality of the spirit, always the spirit of. So it's another way of talking about God, but it's a way of talking about God in such a way that God is within or imminent, and God is no farther removed from us than we are removed from ourselves, although he's more than that. God's always more. But nevertheless, God is always within us, pushing us along and sustaining all of that creation. Now, all of this is leading us, I, I think, in many ways to a, um, a different way of, um, uh, of picturing the world around us and the, um, a, a different way of kind of picturing the, uh, the natural world from what we would have done in the past. So it is really changing our images a lot. Let me just show, show you some, some differences. One of the ways that we work very often in the past, and in fact, this is still part of our vocabulary, and I would bet you it's the default thinking for almost everybody. Body and soul. Huh? Dualism. Huh? We, have, we have very, very strong images of dualism, which is all great Greek philosophy, not very biblical, and is really going to be a hindrance to Darwin's theory of evolution, and it's going to be a hindrance to this imminence. Huh? Body and soul is the way that we think all the time. And then, of course, when we think about body and soul, we do it all the time with a kind of dualism where soul is what's really important and bodies aren't terribly important, right? And so sometimes we tolerate bodies. If you're a good Greek, you want to get out of the body, right? The body was the prison of the soul, and what you wanted to do is get get out of that body. You didn't care very much about body. Well, you can see how that's not terribly helpful for imminence, right? Where body is not going to be anything important. At worst, it's a prison, you know. At best, it's a neutral kind of thing, and the soul is what's really important in it. So we kind of run on different tracks. So we've thought about that for centuries, right? And a lot of times it has negative images in terms of creation. So imagine what you're doing with the natural world when the natural world is associated with all the bodily side of things, right? And soul is really the important part. Uh, You know, we we still use that vocabulary where we we try to do all of our good Christian missionary work to save souls, 
Anybody say, anybody going to save the body? You know, wants to worry about saving the body. So when, when body gets associated with, with nature, say, and then you've got a dualism, then you're not terribly involved with nature, and you don't particularly care about nature, or nature is not even important. Huh? Nature is what we want to get out of. Uh, we've had good spiritual writing that talk about us being alien in a land, waiting to get to our true home, which, which is heaven doesn't give a very good image of this alien land down here, right? You know, which is, which is uh, you know, again, something that's not our last reality. We want to get to something else. Heaven is pictured as getting out of the earth and, and beyond it all. So what we need to do is to develop an image where we're not getting out of the earth, but we're bringing the whole earth with us, right? And that really we're part and parcel of it. And that, in fact, we are bodily creatures. And that the only way we function is through our body, Right? So that body is not just that, you know, thing that we've got here that we're kind of stuck with until we get out of it. The body is the only way we function. So if you think about body in the biblical sense, for instance, body is always the whole person made for communication. <coughs> Different way of picturing things, right? Body is the whole person made for communication. And that we are alive in that body. Huh? But we're not alive with some principle that's a separate kind of element that kind of takes body or leaves body, but then has some important life someplace else, the only life we have is bodily existence. Why do Christians spend all their time talking about bodily resurrection when it's got all these problems of trying to picture what a bodily resurrection looks like? You know, We keep saying we're going to get new bodies, but we keep insisting on getting bodies, right? And we don't want to get rid of bodies. And that's because the only thing we are is bodies, right? And, and St. Paul, they say, for St. Paul, you don't have bodies, you are bodies. Huh? Different way of picturing things. So, in other words, everything that's going on in terms of material creation just carries on even in terms of us. Huh? So Darwin's theory of evolution doesn't say, well, it all goes nicely through all of this evolutionary theory, but then when we come along, what God does is he plops a soul into us. And now we're really different because we got a soul. Somehow, it all started, you know, with one big bang, and then rocks, and who knows what else, and then life began to emerge out of all of that, and then we came along. Huh? But we came along still as part of that material creation, and what's unique and different about us is that now we are a material creation with self-consciousness and with free will, but all of that came as part of evolution. Huh? So there's not some point where evolution stopped and where we're now different. We evolved, and we have no idea where we're going to end up. We're still evolving. Huh? We don't know what the next stage is going to be. Huh? But we're not the end product, and we're not different. Huh? So we've got some specific qualities that distinguish us from the rest of the material creation, but it's trying to picture this pattern of one big reality, and we're part of all of that. And that bodily existence is really important in all of that. Doesn't that give you a different way of thinking, you know, that's really really, you know, kind of struggling in some ways to try to figure out, well, what are we going to do with all of that? That's a lot different when you've got bodies and souls and dualism that, that goes on. There's another, um, you know, other kind of dimensions of all of this that get pointed out, you know, that we've had a theology that's been very patriarchal. You know, in a patriarchal theology, you know, then you kind of have rational functions and you have emotional functions. And, and in patriarchy, we always kind of develop things where men had all the rational functions, Right. And women had all the emotional functions. And then what happened is, of course, reason was always better than emotion. And so men were in charge. And, you know, so you can see there are other kinds of dualism. 
But a theology that kind of developed that way all the time. And then, of course, God always got to be masculine, you know, because that was rational and that was better part. Emotional part, you know, women, you know, subordination. So, you know, as we start challenging all of those things, that starts giving different pictures. Now we've got God as mother. Now we start saying, well, pay a little bit more attention to the spirit. And the spirit, you know, is, uh, is feminine in, uh, in, uh, in Hebrew, huh? ruach. Huh? So there's a feminine image there. And when you're talking about all this imminence and the, the mothering functions and all of those things, that, in fact, that's part of God huh? and part of, uh, of how uh, creation uh, uh, exists. So these were all the, you know, I think major differences of what is going on now that I think is, is quite different from the way in which we would have had things in the past. One other thing that I, well, there are two other things of, of the way in which we kind of work things in the past that are really kind of shifting in, in our theology. And I, I don't know if you've got this in your traditions. They were very strong in, in mine, in, in Roman Catholicism, but nature and, and grace, nature and supernature. You care about that very much, nature and grace and the difference? We used to always talk about, you know, you had kind of a natural world and then you had a supernatural world, you know. And we, we acted as if they were two different realities, you know, that you had natural existence going on around here, but then you had supernatural existence that was kind of imposed on top of it. Uh, you know, in Roman Catholicism, the worst example of all of that was limbo, right? Because the kid didn't get grace yet, you know. The child didn't get the supernatural reality, it just had natural life. And so then if the kid died in natural life, had to go someplace, so it had natural happiness, but it didn't have supernatural happiness. Well, one of the things that all of this, you know, unified way of picturing God imminent and God within us in our bodily reality and God in us as part of a whole creation with which we share, is beginning to say that there's no such thing as two separate worlds. Huh? You don't have a world of nature and then a world of supernature. Grace is not something that's kind of given as, you know, a big overlay on top of things. Grace is what permeates everything. So the only reason why we talk about nature and grace is because we want to make sure that we all know that grace is a gifted reality. So nothing is owed to us. Huh? It's all pure gift, and we call it grace. But grace so permeates everything that there is no place that you can go that just finds a natural world. Okay? Everything is permeated with God's presence, and the permeation of God's presence is what we call grace. Huh? So God is already pouring the breath of life into us, giving us a share in God's very existence, and in that kind of reality, everything is a graced world. So you can talk about grace permeating nature because you want to make sure that you've got gift and that you know we're not owed anything by God in terms of divine life and our intimacy with God, but in the end, everything is intimacy with God, and all of the natural world is in fact a graced world. You can't go any place without finding the presence of God there. So that's the, the Holy Spirit huh? that, that is working within us and is giving us that kind of life. So all of these images start moving us, I think, to, uh, to other ways of picturing um, you know, our relationship to God that, that then begins to, to talk about this uh, imminence of God in, um, in new ways. So let me... Let me just um, uh, develop a couple of points further on all of this and then get to one uh, big issue about um, uh, providence huh? and how this continuing creation works in the middle of chaos and spontaneity and all of that. 
One of the things that begins to develop theologically now, I think in, in many different circles, is to talk about God now in what we would call panentheism. Panentheism. So, you know, if you, if you looked at our way of talking about God before, God was outside creation. So God is transcendent, you know. Creation runs its own way and God's up there. Maybe God's pulling strings, but God's not in creation, right? If we begin to take everything that I've talked about, one of the temptations would be then to move to pantheism, right? So God's in, right? Then we're pantheists. God's in everything. Everything's God, you know. The problem with pantheism is that it settles for where we are right now, right? So if God is in everything, and everything is pantheistic, huh, then what we've got is the final, ultimate reality. We've got divinity here. And then, of course, we look around and we say, boy, it sure doesn't look like it yet, you know? And we've got a mess, and things are still evolving, and they're still growing. So pantheism isn't going to be the right answer. But we don't want to kind of solve all of this by plucking God out of creation, putting God someplace else. So what theologians have developed is what they call another whole theology. It's not pantheism, it's panentheism. Huh? Panentheism is God in everything. Huh? God permeating everything, like water, like breath, huh? like fire, huh? okay? like Holy Spirit. Huh? But it's that presence of God within us and God everywhere, but God sustaining, God accompanying, huh? God encouraging, God beckoning us forward. Huh? but God within everything sustaining us as we move along. So panentheism has gotten, to be, uh, has gotten to be important. And when we begin to recognize that, it begins to give us another view of all of creation as places of finding God. This, this is what's starting to unite us to all of creation more importantly. You know, we always had before the sense we're the image and likeness of God, right? So if you want to see God, you've got to look at human beings, well, now what we can begin to say is if God is in everything, huh, panentheism, then every aspect of creation is showing us something about God. That, in fact, all of creation is in the image of God. Huh? We are, in distinctive ways, because of self-consciousness and free will, that reflects an image of God that's going to be different from what the rest of creation can do. But in point of fact, all of creation shows some aspect of God, some aspect of divinity. So you, Augustine said way back, you know, he said, I looked at the sun and the moon, and I said, are you my God? And he said, no, but, but he made us. And I looked at, uh, you know, the waters, and I said, are you my God? He said, no, but he made us. And he said, my, my uh, question huh, was my gazing at them, and their answer was their beauty, right? So in other words, he found in every aspect of creation something about the nature of God and something about what God is all about. So we might find a sense of beauty, we might find a sense of love, we might find a sense of, uh, of order, we might find a sense of, of goodness. Wh whatever we find in creation around us, all of that somehow is giving us some aspect of God. Of course, that's going to be in, in really special ways when we get to human beings, but it's putting us as part of that creation, and it's one big reality that is ultimately reflecting God. In Roman Catholicism, we call that sacramentalism. Big fights over all of that. I think everybody is getting a sense now we all have sacramentalism in some way. Catholics happen to have a whole lot more, <laughs> but Protestants even have a sense huh? that, that in some way, sacraments are always external, visible manifestations of the invisible reality. Right? 
And so sacramentalism is not just are there seven sacraments or two, you know, or three, you know, sacraments are a gazillion. Huh? You know, the earth is 13 billion years old. Everything we talk about is in terms of billions, and all those billions are sacraments, right? They are in different ways trying to give us invisible, tangible manifestation in some way, that imminence of God who is sustaining it and supporting it and pushing it through in, uh, in being. So it's a sense of the spirit, huh? but the sense of the spirit within, and then all of this kind of bringing creation together in a unity that's really important. So it starts giving us a new sense of where we are in creation. That's huh? not dualistic anymore, doesn't have nature, supernature, you know, isn't putting God someplace else, but is really unifying everything and then finding God in the middle of all of it, huh? panentheism. So when we finish all of that, then people are trying to say, well now, what are we going to do about all this randomness and chaos and everything else? Huh? Well, in the past, we would have pictured providence as God saying, okay, you do things, and then every once in a while, stop. Now I'm going to take care of something, you know. And, uh, you know, so providence kind of intervening directly all the time. Now, if we take seriously the way creation is, what we have to do is we have to picture this imminence of God as constantly sustaining everything, but sustaining everything with the way in which God has put creation together, letting creation function and operate. So if we want to have divine causality, we have to see divine causality on another level. Our problem in the past was that causality was working on the same level. So either God does it or we do it. Huh? That's causality. But that's causality that runs in competition. So now what we're trying to say is that if we're going to talk about God as cause, we have to talk about God as cause in a totally different way. As something that inhabits, or as the being, you know, that inhabits everything and enables everything to function, but is not interfering with the way in which beings function. So God started everything off, and God supports it and sustains it, and God calls it forward and gives it hope, huh? but God does not intervene. So if you want to put it in, in homey terms, what God did was God created us and gave us free will and said, now go make your decisions. And God, I'm not going to make them for you. Go make them. But now we're beginning to see that that doesn't happen just in terms of free will. That happens in terms of creation. So God says, okay, I started you off, now go create yourself. To all of creation. And creation says, well, let me try this. Oh, that didn't work. Let me try that. That didn't work. Huh? Descent with modification. Okay. Struggle for existence. Ah, this is working. Let's keep this going. Huh? Let's keep this modification. Let's keep, you know, natural selection. It's going to help us survive in the middle of all of this. Survival of the fittest, if you want to call it that way, right? So, and God is happy with all of this, watching all of it. And then some things reach a dead end. So, all right, now we've got to do something else. So this is creation itself moving along. And what God is doing is supporting it and sustaining it, but God is not intervening directly. Huh? So God doesn't do anything directly in terms of the world. The world evolves. <coughs> What God allows in the middle of all of that is chaos and randomness. So God's causality is on a kind of a bigger plane, if you want, or a, you know, a broader kind of reality behind all of that. God simply tells creation to create, and then when human beings come along in the middle of all of that, God tells human beings to make choices and decisions as they move along, and God doesn't intervene by doing anything directly involved in all of that. So the Spirit is there sustaining, the Spirit is there supporting, the Spirit is always there moving it along and encouraging and giving hope and all of that, but the Spirit is not there doing things directly. 
evolution has to take its course, including human evolution and wherever we fit in all of that. So it's another sense of providence that I think is still very, very vital and very important because what we recognize is that we couldn't do a thing without God sustaining and supporting and moving along. We'd be annihilated. We'd be out of existence. But that God is a God of love that loves us so much that that love enables us to do our own growth and our own development. And God is there all the time being very pleased by all of it. And God is being imaged when all of the aspects of creation or our own decisions begin to mirror that reality of God more fully. And God's waiting for creation to be finished. So it's a sense of providence, but not a sense of providence where God runs competition to us, but where God's working on another level. I think in some ways that helps to to finally resolve the big fight we have back and forth all the time about predestination. Okay? Are we free, or is God deciding everything? And I say the problem is, if you put them on the same level, you've got to run into big trouble, then is God doing it or are we doing it? If you put them on two different levels, it all makes sense, and everybody's right, right? And maybe everybody's wrong, okay? But, you know, God, God is behind absolutely everything, so you call that predestination. God has created everything, huh? But God does all of that, respecting all the time what the nature of creation that God has created and recognizing the nature of our free will. So in the end, everything is going to be explained by our causes, and sometimes they're going to be explained by randomness, you know, and, uh, and chaos. That's also part of what goes on. So for me, these arguments that come from science, you know, where science says, well, you've got chaos, so you can't have God, or you have chaos and randomness, so you can't have meaning, and you can't have providence. Huh? For me, it says you just haven't gone back enough, you know, to what's behind all of that, that in fact... You want to explain chaos and randomness and everything else, not by saying, you know, that it doesn't make any sense or that God's not doing anything, but recognizing that God's one step farther back saying, go create yourself. Go make your choices and decide, you know, how ultimately you're going to image me. But that, in fact, there is meaning behind everything. It's just one step farther removed from what we try to do when we try to give meaning to things. That's going to help us with evil and a whole lot of other things, too. But we've got to get to Jesus, and we've got to get to God the Father on all of this. But for now, it's just a sense of providence and what the Spirit is doing that try to help us. So I think even predestination is not a big, you know, difficult thing anymore. Two different levels. Uh, theologians describe all of that by saying God moves us, but God moves us freely. <laughs> we just have to leave it at that. <laughs> But, but you see, different levels of causality. So, you know, I always like to say, theologically, you couldn't even sin without God. Because God sustains everything. But we don't want to say God sins, right? Because God's not doing anything directly. God is sustaining everything in being, but then supporting. And we have to learn the effects of our own decisions. And we have to learn the effects of a creation that's still trying to invent itself and figure out how to go. And God's allowing all of that, but God is there. And so if forgiveness is needed, there's forgiveness. You know, if uh, encouragement is needed, there's encouragement. Support, God's always there in all of that, but not damaging, you know, the creation that God has put together and allowing it to function. So God moves us all because God sustains everything, but God moves us freely and respects our choices and our decisions. So I hope that gives you some sense of, you know, what happens when we talk about the creed. You know, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. Huh? that this is what we're talking about. Huh? 
and its life in abundance, and its life that is ultimately still creating itself. It's a continuous creation, and God is everywhere. Huh? And God is in all of this, and we have to keep finding God in that kind of reality, you know, as, as God creates. Then we'll start figuring out how Jesus gets in here, and how God the Father gets in here, and all the other aspects of creation. But I think I'll, I'll leave it at that, give you a couple of minutes to ask questions if you've got any. Yeah? So you have to forgive me as a younger man, I majored in metaphysics, so <laughs> I, I have this this nice image of 13 some billion years ago, God sort of with the first domino, and then everything starts falling. I'm, I'm still a little, you know, what does it mean for God to be there sustaining when, when really there's, you know, everything's running, you know, it's like, I, I'm not sure why we necessarily, you know, it, it's maybe a, so many gazillion in one shot that we're all here in the yeah, first place. Yeah. But it, it happened. Nature took its course. The creation took its course. However you want. What does that mean? Well, I, I think in the end, what we're doing constantly is we're trying... I, I mean, it's the very issue of what it means that is, is what this is all talking about. As soon as you start saying what, it, what does it mean, you're trying to figure out how to make sense of all of this stuff, or where, where it's heading. If you just say, well, it just happens, then what's next? So why do I make any particular decisions for anything? Um, why do I worry about, you know, the environment? Why don't just just let it happen? There's something that, that you know, we call truth, and truth keeps changing, and truth is contextual, but we're still searching for it. We still try to see patterns and things that we call beauty. Uh, we're still trying to relate to some things as good for us, and we call it love. That, for me, even metaphysically, seems to be that search for meaning. And so, as soon as I say, what does it mean, then I'm either going to find it within the creation itself, or I'm going to say, I think there's something more, and that I never quite find it enough in creation there's something more, and then I come to God. So I think when you already say, what's the meaning, you've answered your question. <laughs> and, that, and that's what I find the problem with, with a scientist, when, when they just say at the end, it's just chaos. And I say, as soon as you tell me it's just chaos, you've already tried to put meaning to that. And when you tell me it's meaningless, you've already given meaning by calling it meaningless. So you've fallen into metaphysics, whether you liked it or not. So I, and and that's, that's where I think the wrestling is right now. You know, some people say, it's just genes. It's just neutrons and protons. It's just chemicals. And I say, as soon as you say it's just, you've already given meaning to it, that's more than chemicals and all of that. You know, you've gotten to self-conscious reality and you've gotten to, you know, free will and choices and decisions. And that's already giving meaning to, to things. Does that help? I, I mean, best I can figure out. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, see, our, our problem most of the time with all the science and, you know, and the other things that become the arguments is that we... We have so many symbols and so many ways of trying to deal with it. So we got water and, you know, and birds and, and all of that. And what happens is, um, as soon as you get into all of these arguments, I, I think what happens is that either Christians start taking this stuff too literally, or the scientists 
start imposing on them literal images and say, isn't that foolish stuff? Look at what's going on in science, and you've got all this crazy stuff trying to explain, explain things. Or even a sense, you know, that there's a provident God who's pulling the strings, you know, which doesn't seem to fit well with, with what's going on in science. So what's happening is that all the symbols and the other things are being taken too literally, uh, you know, or we're trying to get God all figured out too much, and, uh, and either scientists imposing that on religion and then criticizing it, or people in religion trying to make themselves so different from science that they, they keep defining it too much, you know. Got to leave a lot of mystery in all of this, but, but for me, it seems to me that immanence is not going to be enough, we're going to find transcendence somehow. And that that's why religion is around, because there's always something more. But that something more gets to be really mysterious. And, and when I try to define it all, you know, all I'm capturing here is the mystery of it with a lot of Im images, you know, and, and symbols. don't know if this is like the <clears throat> there is um, certain people who have been doing like experiments with um, like a divine consciousness or divine intelligence mm -hmm. that's within everything yeah. and uh, there was a Japanese gentleman I believe who did it with water and he was studying um, the patterns that water makes you know like the snowflakes and, and things like that and um, I think he's Buddhist, but anyways, he was trying to figure out how humans, you know, can interact with that um, intelligence or consciousness <coughs> within water. And he got, like, groups of people to meditate on certain things, like on love or like mm -hmm. on hate. And then, <coughs> then he looked at the result of the water that had been exposed to, you know, those um, thoughts, you know. And they showed when they thought of love, they had beautiful patterns within the water. Mm -hmm. But when they thought of <coughs> hate or other, it was reflected in the patterns in the water. So... And uh, he was criticized about this, but he's, like, proven it, mm -hmm. like, several times. And that kind of, you know, looks like that people can actually influence, which is what he was trying to say, that people mm -hmm. actually, you know, our intelligence, you know, or our spirit, yeah, you know, yeah. interacting with the, the nature causes, you know, or can cause, you know, negative effects on, you know, the environment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, in the end, I don't know. Finally, you know what what this will show us. There are a couple of things. I think one is that, you know, the sense of some people from a religious point of view, that this Théodore de Chardin, and you know, and others. Théodore de Chardin was a Jesuit paleontologist who was a, a great scientist who tried to figure out, you know, how to fit evolutionary theory in all of this. And and his theory is that we're at a new stage of evolution, and in fact, we're all part of that but it's kind of evolution into a greater consciousness, which is maybe some of what you're talking about there. He said we went from kind of a lithosphere to a biosphere, which is where we are now. So we went from stones and rocks to living beings, lithosphere, rocks, to biosphere, living beings. But he says, now where do we go next? He said, maybe the next is the movement to the noosphere. Nous is the, uh, the Greek word for mind uh, or thought so that we may be moving to a new evolutionary stage that is going to be more in terms of consciousness. And, you know, some people say that's what social media is doing, that's what the Internet is doing, 
That's what global communication is doing, that in fact is creating new kinds of beings here. And, you know, evolution takes stage over billions and billions of years, so don't try to figure out what this is going to look like. You've got to be around for a couple of billion years, you know, before we see where it heads. But maybe, maybe neurosphere is, is one of those things where, in fact, consciousness, you know, and that, that higher reality is what may be affecting, you know, the natural world around us and, and how we affect it. So, you know, these may be baby steps in that. What makes me cautious on some things is when they call it the divine mind, I think any time you start trying to get into God and figure it out, you know, and say, now I've got a little insight here, a little proof, you know, and now I'm sharing God's mind, I always say, no, no, this is another human, you know, finite attempt, you know, to try to mirror something that is ultimately transcendent and vastly beyond that. So I wouldn't try to pretend to get into God's mind by any shape or form. Um, that's transcendent. It's always more uh, than what we could do. And uh, it underpins everything, but it's not, it's not graspable uh, directly. Yeah. I had a physics teacher once and stopped us all when we thought we were really learning truth. He said, this is just our best understanding yeah, of what yeah. we're observing right now. So be prepared to have to rethink everything. And so yeah, this issue point. of the opposition in some people's mind between creationism and evolution, the Darwinism, and spirituality, I think can be easily addressed. And when you took, take a look at what some of the greatest physicists and scientists have thought about their spiritual observations, you see many mm -hmm. being very humbled with yeah, regard yeah. to some sort of connection that mm -hmm. I think that that's being brought forth here in the consistency uh, between our spiritual, the spiritual, yeah, it's and, good point. and us evolving, and there being randomness in it, and maybe all part of the plan. That there's yeah, randomness it's, it's, it's a good point. I have, one of my colleagues said, you know, when you, if you, if you marry science to religion, then uh, it becomes a widow in the next generation. Uh, you know, in other words, you have to maintain the distinction. But then there are different ways of going at this. Now, you can you can take a model in which science and religion are in conflict, or you can take a model where science and religion just go their own ways, or you can take a model where science and religion interchanges and interacts and can be integrated in some way, but never identical with one another. Huh? They're, they're really running different things, and they're really working on different levels. So... Science deals with science, and religion is dealing with transcendent reality. Yeah, it's finding meaning in different levels. Huh? And, uh, and so you don't want to wed them, but you don't want to have them fight each other. And so, uh, uh, and, and the other interesting observation that, that you made was that uh, science itself is constantly changing. So you don't want to tie all your religion into any science, you know, as giving the final explanation of everything, because all that science may change. And in fact, when it does, your religion is going to change as well. But, you know, but everything is kind of moving along, and neither one of them is, is the final, final uh, you know, rock bed on which uh, ultimate truth is, uh, is achieved. Yeah, I've got a question here. We'll do one, two here, and then we'll have to let people go. Um, I, I wonder how you would fit uh, this uh, uh, into uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul very often says, don't follow the false teacher. Mm -hmm. You probably have less problem with using images that we can understand uh, about uh, the beginning of creation. 
even continuing. But when you get to, is it the Holy Spirit manifesting itself uh, and bringing God within us, where you begin to have different uh, uh, possibilities of that being a false mm-hmm. understanding of what the Holy Spirit is sure. in your life. Yeah. How do you distinguish that, and how does Paul distinguish it, and how would you in theology distinguish right. what is a real manifestation of the Holy Spirit, yeah. and what is not? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I, I, think, I think what I would say is that there always has to be a certain amount of humility, uh, and one of the things I would say for sure is that I don't have any mathematical formula to uh, to get that all worked out, you know. But we recognize that a lot of times people say, "Well, this is the Holy Spirit," and what it really is is their own pig-headed opinion, you know, that's going on. But now, how do how do we, you know, how do we how do we work this out? We have to work it out in the same way that all of evolution takes place. You've got trial and error. And error. People say, "Well, what are the rules for discernment?" Well, the rules for discernment aren't by going to some outside third party who finally says, you're right, you're wrong, you know, and here it's all answered. What you do is you keep testing it out, right? And so, you know, you try to see what kind of fruits does it bear, you know? Is it building up community? Is it really creating the person better? Is it giving a, a greater sense of, you know, the goodness of creation around us? So, in other words, you keep, you keep trying all of this stuff, and then you see what the fruits are, and gradually you come to a, to a sense of... Uh, of where the spirit is, and then because it is all in evolution, sometimes you're never quite sure, right? So even after you do all of this stuff, you say, oh, well, let's give it a try, you know, and then sometimes it, it bears good fruit and sometimes it doesn't. So, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it's a long process and sometimes with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of humility. I would be much um, uh, more wary of anybody who said, here's where the spirit is and here's how the spirit functions and here's the rules and in the end, it's always, so do it my way, right? But uh, so, so the spirit is much more, it, it is all of this, the wind blows where it will, and discerning the spirit is always difficult. One last question? Um, well, I, it's really, I wanted to say that I took a course several years ago on science and religion, and the, um, the, the main point of it was that science addresses different questions. Mm-hmm. religion does. Science says exactly what happened here, what can I measure, you know, what laws are being obeyed, and right. how can I predict what's going to happen in, with the physical world. Whereas religion addresses questions of who did this and why, yeah. and uh, the, the answer is right there in Genesis. Yeah. God did it because it was good. Yeah. And uh, if, so if, if somebody's starting to tell you it's all, you know, all the answers are in science, then start asking them well, who and why, and uh, and they'll be stumped because science just can't answer those questions. Yeah, well, that's yeah. You know, Thomas Aquinas said you have different kinds of causality. You have material cause, you have formal cause, you have efficient cause, and you have final cause. Science deals with material and formal causality. You know, but when when you ask the questions, you know, uh, uh, why, or you ask the questions, you know, who. Uh, you're outside the realm of, uh, of science. And so, uh, and Jack Hart gave another example I think is always great. You, you can answer the question, why is the pot, the kettle boiling? 
for a lot of different reasons, you know. The kettle's boiling because when you raise the temperature to a certain degree, all the molecules start shooting around, and, that, and that's why the kettle's boiling. Or you could say the kettle's boiling because I want tea. Huh? <laughs> or the kettle's boiling because I turned on the stove. So, and in fact, why is the kettle boiling? Well, because the molecules are floating all around is science. When you say the kettle's boiling because I turned on the stove, you're not in science anymore. And when you say the kettle's boiling because I want tea, you're really outside science. Huh? And so, so there are different kinds of causalities and different levels. But what you don't want to do is separate them from each other or put them in conflict with each other, which is what we've done very often. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>